Christians have historically cared about issues of life um, since the very beginning. And we've done so for theological reasons. Um, it's not arbitrary. It's not just like we, we have this idea that, oh, this is good. Our morality is grounded in something. And the issue of life has been so important historically to Christians because of the doctrine of image of God or imago Dei. And that comes to us from the scriptures in the very beginning of our story. When God creates human beings, he says, Genesis says, 126, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God creates human beings and says, this is my image, which is crazy if you think about it because it's it's not like the splendor of sun and star or the majesty of mountains that's the pinnacle of God's creation. Human beings made in his image sit at the pinnacle of his creation. Now, oftentimes we talk about why life is precious and important because we're made in the image of God, but we just say this phrase, image of God, and we don't really take time to, like, what do we actually mean when we say human beings are made in the image of God? And before we get started today, just briefly, because this is one of those things that you could spend literally years and years studying and talking about what it does mean to be made in the image of God. But just briefly, when we say human beings are made in the image of God, we're talking primarily about two things, value and vocation. So what do I mean first by value? All human beings have life, and that life is valuable because God has, as an authoritative external source, declared it. To have value. And so I've used this analogy before. Someone's going to, we'll see who gets it, but it's like, okay, I got a $10 bill. Who wants it? Who wants a $10 bill? Quick. Okay. You were pretty fast. Okay. Okay. So this is technically just paper, right? Like in one sense, like why does it have value? It doesn't have, it's just paper. You, you want this, this piece of paper. You want it? It's, it's all, it's wrinkled up. It's all folded. You still want it. Well, and, and why? It's obvious because an external source has declared that this has value. Namely, the United States government as an authority says this represents $10 and now it has value. Okay. Now, what if I, I really fold it up though? You, you still want it, right? What if this dollar, it's, you know, it's, it's, I lost it and I forgot about it and it was lonely in, in, in my closet. So you don't care that like it had a lonely life. Okay, what if, okay, what, what if it's like, it's mistreated? <laughs> you dirty, rotten, no good $10 bill. You can't, you used to be able to buy a pizza in California. You can't even do that now. You still want it. You sure? It's yours. If you want it, it's $10. You could buy maybe a hamburger at a fast food place. Probably. Okay. You guys get it, right? Human beings have a substance that's of value. We're rational, moral creatures because we're made in the image of God. But additionally, on top of that, God declares human beings to have this value. So there's an external source of authority that says all life 
matters. Now, that's one side of the coin in what it means to be made in the image of God. And that's, if you've gone to church for a long time, that's probably the, the side of the coin that you've heard most. But there's another, and that has to do with vocation. It has to do with function. Because human beings are not just made in the image of God, we are called to image God. So think of it, one, one has a, like a noun, and then there's a verbal component. We are made in the image of God, and we are also supposed to image this God. And we see this in tons of ancient cultures because they use the exact same language. So, it, for example, in Egypt, there was one person who was said to be made in the image of God, and that was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the one made in the image of God. And what that meant in the Egyptian life was that Pharaoh was to execute the will of the gods. Pharaoh is the image of the gods, and because he's the image, he is supposed to do the will of the gods in his domain. He's been given authority and responsibility to implement the will of the gods. Now, the radical revolutionary claim of the book of Genesis is that uh, not just the king or not just Pharaoh is made in the image of God, but every single human being bears that image, which means every single human being ought to exercise responsibility and dominion over creation. And that's why if you look back when it says God makes us in his image, what comes right after that? Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, over all the earth. The theology is saying that human beings are to do God's will on earth as he does in heaven. We're made in his image, so we have value, and then our vocation what are we supposed to be doing as human beings on earth? Well, we, do, we, we rule and reign on behalf of God. Now, oftentimes when you talk about like rule or dominion, you, all kinds of bad things come to your mind because those sound like negative words. But when human beings are doing right, they rule in a way that reflects the goodness of a good God. And things are ordered and societies flourish. But when human beings rule and reign and exercise dominion in a way that's not in accordance with the will of God, things go terribly wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. So what do we mean when someone is made in the image of God? They have value, they are made in his image, and then they likewise are to image God into the world. You have a role to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, today I'd like to talk about three segments of society reflecting three phases of life. Specifically, the unborn, the unparented, and the unfriended. The first one is kind of obvious. The next two, you'll see what I mean when we get there. But these are three segments of society that are incredibly neglected. And if Christians are to care for all of life, from conception to the grave, then we ought to pay attention to these things. We care about it all from start to finish. So first, the unborn. And I want to be extremely sensitive here because um, I recognize abortion is something that has affected so many people, and I'm not here to, today to talk about what's in your, what may or may not be in your past, except for the fact that um, God is more gracious and kind and merciful than any of us could ever imagine. My point today is sort of looking forward, because in our culture, there's a dehumanization that's occurring. And dehumanization refers to whenever you look at another human being, 
and begin to make them somehow less human than you. And this has happened historically, right? Again and again, this is the story of human beings. We look at other humans and we come up with arguments to somehow diminish their humanity. This happens in wars. It happens with different ethnicities. We look at someone else, it's a different skin color and somehow they are less than we are, and that historically has led to horrific things. Genocide, the Holocaust, happened in Cambodia, what happened in Rwanda. And what happens is, is you don't want to say, I'm killing other human beings, so you come up with an argument to say, somehow, this person isn't as human as me, to remove the moral consequence. This has happened uh, historically to women. I'm going to show you a uh, an instance in a moment. But it's also happening to the unborn, human beings in the womb. And you, you don't often pick up on it because um, people just say stuff quickly and you hear an argument there, you hear an argument there, but you, you don't really stop to say, no, I, actually this argument is dehumanizing that which is in the womb. And I'm not here today to do a big like defense of issues of life or say why abortion is wrong, but I just want you to be aware of how subtle and how quickly arguments can be presented, and you don't even realize that there's subtle dehumanization going on. So in our culture, you might hear something about the unborn. Sometimes you'll hear arguments based upon the, the size of what is in the womb, the, the level of development, the, the location. It's in the womb, it's not out of the womb. There's, arguments are made on degrees of dependency. And just briefly, when you hear these things, I just want you to be aware of what's going on and you can kind of demonstrate how they don't add up. So for instance, oftentimes size and level of development is, is talked about of why that which is in the womb, the child, is somehow not on the same level of humanity as someone outside of the womb. You know, people might say, well, the, the, it's the child in the womb isn't fully developed. Um, it's, look, look at this picture, it's, it's this big and it's not fully developed. Um, but here's, here's the thing, um, when it's nine months, it's not fully developed. When an infant is born, it's not fully developed. The size of that baby continues to grow. Some of you got teenagers that ain't fully developed. <laughs> and so, because something has the potential to reach adulthood, that doesn't mean it's somehow less human. That's, that's not how you do ethics. Or oftentimes uh, the environment or the location is discussed. And it's, it's, it's this idea that when a child is in the womb, it's, it, it hasn't reached what we would call the full potential of humanity. It's once it's outside of the womb. But if you just stop and think about that, there's, there's premature babies that are born. And, and this church, we have many stories of them. And, and it's like, okay, so if this baby is six months into development, but it's outside of the womb, that baby is somehow more human than a nine-month-old baby that's still in the womb? Do you get what I'm saying? Like the environment and the location, you can't determine the humanity of something based upon where it's located. And you can't determine it based upon levels of development or size because Children still have the potential to grow in those things. Oftentimes, arguments are based upon degrees of dependency, how dependent upon that child, the life of that child is dependent upon the mother. 
because it cannot live, it cannot be sustained outside of the womb. But the same thing with all of these arguments. Once the baby's born, it's still completely dependent upon the mother for survival. Oh, and by the way, sometimes accidents happen to fully grown adults where they are completely dependent upon a machine or other human beings to take care of them in order to survive. So degrees of dependency, levels of development, environment, location, size, most of those arguments are just real subtle ways of dehumanizing that which is in the womb. And you are walking on dangerous ground when you begin to dehumanize. Very dangerous ground. Just look at history. When we look at any other human and begin to say they're somehow not there, really, really horrific things begin to occur. Now, one of the the other errors that we make when dealing with this is oftentimes we think abortion is a modern issue that modern Christians have to wrestle with. And for 2,000 years in church history, um, we, we just are met with silence from church, church history. But you need to know that for 2,000 years, Christians have dealt with the issue of abortion. It's not a modern invention. They had all kinds of ways of doing stuff in the ancient world, and it was quite common. And we have a document from the first century. This is a, doc, a document called the Didache. We've talked about it multiple times. It's a first century Christian document. So we're talking about the very first Christians, the early church. And this Didache is an ethical document. It's telling Christians how they ought to live. And this is what it says. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not corrupt boys. Do not fornicate. Do not steal. Do not practice magic. Do not go in for sorcery. Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. That phrase, do not murder a child by abortion, euphonesis, technon, and flora, it's a Greek euphemism. And the euphemism was used because it was such a common practice that this phrase was developed to talk about abortion in the ancient world. So from the beginning, Christians have been dealing with this. And from the beginning, the first century, Christians were saying, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Did you catch that? That's called infanticide, where you kill a child outside of the womb. And infanticide was quite common in the first century Roman world. There was all kinds of reasons why people would practice that. Uh, Most often, as we'll see, um, it was done to children that were unwanted for whatever reason. And you can guess what, what gender was most unwanted the majority of the time. And what would take place is, is horrific, and I, w- I won't go into all the details, but essentially you would take a, a baby that was unwanted and you take it out to the countryside and you abandon it. And the baby would die from exposure, animals, or possibly worse, it would be depending, it's like what, pick, pick, pick what horrific thing that can happen. You could be picked up by slave traders and the child's raised in slavery or would picked up to be raised in the brothels. This is another document from the first century. This is a soldier writing from Alexandria to his wife back in Rome. It says, Know that I am still in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered before I come, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. So these babies would be discarded and abandoned. 
And what the early church would do is they would go out into the night and listen for the cries of the afflicted and listen to the cries of the abandoned. And they would find these babies and they would adopt them as their own and they would tell them, we were orphans as well estranged from our heavenly father and sin and rebellion and even though we were lost our heavenly father sought us adopted us invited us into his family and gave us a place at his table therefore we to you extend god's good grace and bring you into our home and adopt you as a son or daughter now you follow this i mean this literally and metaphorically the first Christians would go into the darkness of night and listen for the cries of the hurting. And when they heard those cries, they would show up with God's grace, love, and compassion. That's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. That's who we are. That's our identity. And so oftentimes the world feels like a strange new place. This is the same old, same old, and Christians have the same mission. We have, uh, as a church, has, uh, supported two pregnancy centers that support life in Gilroy Informed Choices and Hollister Hollister Pregnancy Center. Um, and there are two great organizations that if you don't know about, you, you go, go online, Google them, um, and read up on them. They're, they're caring for women, caring for life, caring for babies, caring for families. and so. Two great organizations in our community. The next segment of life that, that is kind of neglected in our culture is unparented. And I realize that's not a wor like a real word, but um, you'll get what I'm saying. Is There are countless children and teenagers who, for whatever reason, lose mom and dad or lose their connection to mom and dad. Sometimes that happens because of death. Sometimes that happens because home life is so horrific that children are removed from the household. They're taken out. Um, and if you don't have loving family members, a grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, dear friends of the family, you're removed from that stable household and the people who you would call family and the people you love, and you're placed in the foster system. Um, in which case, you might get put into a great loving family, you might find some stability, um, but oftentimes the horrific story is there's children that are moved from place to place, never having stability, not having a consistent mother and father pouring into them every night, tucking them into bed, saying, I love you, telling them Jesus loves you, and that could lead to some, some pretty, pretty horrific stuff. These are some of the stats regarding children and teenagers who are shuffled around without a stable home. So in 2013, uh, there was a human trafficking raid done by the FBI, and they rescued all these kids out of this sting. Um, and what they discovered at the end of it was that 60% of them were kids rescued from the foster system. You say, how can that happen? Well, who are the most vulnerable children? 
If you're surrounded by a loving mother, a loving father, loving grandparents, uncles, aunts, friends, you're in a community and you're surrounded by people who know about you and care about you, you are less likely to be put in these vulnerable situations. 60%. 70% of California prison inmates spent time in foster care. Now, for those of you who think mathematically, you're already thinking about the, the craziness of that stat, right? 70%. How much of the population is composed of kids in the foster system? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight percent So let's say you have 10%. It's a high number composing 10% of the population is composing 70%. Now, if you didn't have a family to tell you you love you, to tuck you in at night, to remind you of how precious you are and how proud mommy and daddy are, are of you, you think you might get into some trouble. And you think that getting in trouble in the early years might mean getting into trouble in worse ways after worse ways. And the spiral continues. 71% of girls who will age out of the foster system will be, will be pregnant by 21. 33% of those who age out will be homeless. And what I mean by age out is if you're spending your time kind of in foster care and you never get placed in a solid, stable, kind of permanent home, and then you turn 18 and the system removes its support, and you have no family, no one's taught you how to, to be a grown-up, no one's taught you how to be an adult, 33% go straight into homelessness. And then 50% will develop a substance addiction. Now, you think if you've experienced that type of pain and suffering in life that you might develop an addiction to some substance that gives you some coping mechanism for a brief moment. That's why Christians ought to be the last people to judge, right? We don't know your story. We don't know what horrific things are in your childhood. And so likewise, Christians look at these things and we say we care about this. And we have many people in this church who have been in the foster care system, have come out of it. We have many foster parents. Um, many of you know that we partner with an organization called um, Foster the City. They were Foster the Bay before COVID, but the good news is they're expanding past the Bay, so they can't be Foster the Bay anymore. They got to change the name. And it's saying, it's, it's encouraging Christians to insert themselves into the foster care system and do our best to demonstrate God's love to children who might not have anyone else telling them about love and how precious they are. And so you'll be hearing more about this organization because one of the things that they do is they encourage churches to jump into that system. But also if you're like, hey, I can't, we can't do this. We're not at a phase of life where we could become foster parents and try to give some stability and love to families. They have systems in place where you become like a support family. And some of you might remember this. That might mean just like giving meals every so often to the family that's fostering because it's, 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 it's a lot of work. And so Christians are committed to helping the unborn, helping abandoned infants, and also 
children and teenagers, for whatever reason, have lost mom and dad. We care about these things. Why? Because we were lost at the fall and orphans as well, but our heavenly father adopted us and brought us into his family. This is so near to the heart of God. I just, just briefly, just, I mean, I could literally sit here and give you dozens and dozens and dozens of verses, but just, just look at this. James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what does pure religion look like? Keep yourself unstained from the world, but also to care, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This is like at the center of the heart of God. Psalm 68, five, speaking of God, he says he's a father of the fatherless and protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Psalm 68.6 says, God sets the lonely in families. And what's one of the ways he does that? When the church shows up, he says, you have not been abandoned. Even if you feel like that, your heavenly father cares, and I'm here to tell you that. Now, there's a third segment of society, the last, last one I want to talk about. We'll call this the unfriended. And what I want to talk about now is the vulnerable elderly. Vulnerable elderly. Right now in our country, one in three of our seniors say that they're lonely. In a sense, you kind of have to ask, how in the world is that possible? If you're in your later years in life, wouldn't you have developed more connections? Don't, wouldn't there be kids and, and, and grandkids? And, and for whatever reason, we don't, we don't know how this happens, but relationships deteriorate. And somehow, and I'm not going to pretend that this is, that I know exactly why this, this is occurring, but somehow, one in three of our seniors are lonely. You're lonely. It's like, how is that possible? This is the most connected world imaginable, right? But that's not the case. And many of you I know experience loneliness. There's many reasons to this. I'll give you, here's just one thing that, I, that I've thought about for quite some time for what's causing these issues. Our culture is obsessed with youth culture. It's all about being young. Young is good. Um, we do whatever we can not to age. We spend billions and billions and billions on trying not to age. We fear aging, you know? I started to, uh, during the pandemic, started to get some gray hairs. And what, what do you do? I'm going to pull this gray hair out right away, man. I'm not trying to get, I'm not trying to look like the other pastors on staff at this church, man. All these old dudes. All these old guys, man. I'm not trying to be like that. Think about this. By default, you start to get gray hairs and the American response is pull those out. The majority of cultures, the majority in human history saw gray in your hair or your beard as a gift. 
because you were aging and you were becoming wiser and through life experience, you'd be able to pass on your wisdom to others. You know what the Bible calls gray hair? I know some of you know, because once you start getting gray hair, this became like your favorite. It's like a crown of glory, right? How does something become a crown of glory, this sign of wisdom and experience to, oh man, COVID got me getting gray hairs in my beard because we're obsessed with youth culture. And some of you know this, it, you, you've experienced this, I know, I know. As you've aged, you've grown in wisdom and experience and discernment, but people care less about what you have to say because it's all about what the young people have to say all of the time. It's, don't, don't listen to them, they don't, they don't know. You gotta ask young people, and churches do this. And it's like, what are we doing? If you cut off the wisdom of those who have gone before you, you're destined to mess up. You're destined to mess up. And so there's all these reasons, but at least one of them that's contributing to this is we fear aging, we don't want it, we're obsessed with youth culture, we'll do whatever we can to avoid it. And so we put in our, our, ourselves in a place for now, one in three of our seniors are lonely. And this is why it's so bad. It's not just, okay, there's loneliness. There's, there's a lot of research on this and you can look into it yourself, but um, when, you, when you are lonely in your elderly years, um, you are statistically more likely to develop dementia. You are statistically more likely to be abused. And it's the same thing as the kids, right? If you don't have, it's, it's on the opposite though. If you're in your, your last several years of life and you don't have kids and friends and relatives to support you, you're alone, you are by default more likely to be abused. There's research that shows that if you're a senior and you experience loneliness, that the common cold hits you harder. Everything's worse when you're lonely. Getting the cold is worse when you're lonely. And this has to do, interesting enough, with the fifth commandment. Um, because in our culture, for many of the same reasons we just talked about, our culture, when we discuss the fifth commandment, it's all about directing it to who? The little ones, right? The fifth commandment's for the little kids. Honor your mother and father. Now, don't get me wrong. It applies to the little kids too. I tell my, I tell my kids every night the fifth commandment. <laughs> Say, you know, the first two are obviously the most important. And then the rest, there's debate. But the third most important is number five, kids. Honor your mother and father. Now, that's certainly an application of the, of the honor in your mother, mother and father commandment. But when we, when we look at the documents from something called the intertestamental period and the first few hundred years of the church, so think a couple hundred years before Jesus and a couple hundred years after Jesus, when we look at the documents and how they discuss the fifth commandment, it's always applied the other way. It's not parents telling their kids. It's, it's telling adult children to honor, respect, and care for their parents as they age. I mean, it's like 100% of the time. It's, it's, it's incredible. 
It's always about, hey, adult kids, give honor and respect to your parents above you. But it's speaking to adult children. And it's this, this idea that we, there is a place of honor in age. There is a crown of glory. There is a care and a seeking after wisdom and guidance when we look up. And our culture has just completely demolished that. And one of the effects is the loneliness of seniors. And so you're gonna be hearing more about this, hopefully in September. But before COVID hit, many of you know that we started something called microsites in small pockets of community where there were people who were very likely to be lonely, assisted living centers, um, people who live in, in care facilities where you, could, you can't come to church even if you want to because you physically can't or you can't drive or you don't have a car. And so rather than just say, we want you to watch online or something like that, we started doing these little mini church services in, in these places. Um, and we were developing friendships and relationships. And unfortunately, when, when COVID hit, all of those had to, to cease, but we're looking to start those things up again very soon. And we have volunteers ready and, and people are wanting us to come back. Um, but that's something that you could be a part of as well. And as we talk more about it, if that's something you feel called to be in, step, step right in. We need people. Um, we had three of these. Uh, we were going on four of these microsites before the pandemic hit, and we intend to keep doing that and hopefully do more and more. Um, why? Because all of life matters from conception to the grave. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation matter to God. Male and female matter to God. Jew, Gentile matter to God. The unborn, the born, middle life, latter years of life. All of that stuff matters to God. And what's at the center of the heart of God is when he sees the weak and vulnerable being mistreated. God wants to do something about that. And we want to join in with our Heavenly Father with that. Psalm 82, three through four says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. First John three seventeen. if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That's a rough Bible verse. You may quote that real easy. No, stop and think about this. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? That's heavy. Psalm 72, four. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy. Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice, for all who are dispossessed. So we have people in our society, and there's more than just the three segments that I talked about, but those are just three. We have people who do not have a voice, and the church is called to speak up for those who have no voice. And so there's tons of areas that we're going to try to do this in, and this is sort of like a a primer as, as, as we get things rolling again, that many of the ministries that were put on pause or coming back and we want you to dive into these things and, and I want you to see them as something central to, to the heart of God 
speak up for those who have no voice. That's what we do. That's what the church is about. And that's what we've been doing for 2,000 years. There's nothing new under the sun. For 2,000 years, Christians have been about this. And as we prepare for communion, all of this, again, is rooted in theology, in the scriptures. We are made in the image of God and we are called to image God. All human beings have life and value, but in addition, human beings ought to image God. We're to take responsibility for the brokenness of the world and do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we do that out of not guilt, but out of the grace that's already been given to us. Because we all have different stories. Some of us have good childhood, horrible childhood. Some of us have been adopted. Some of us were in the foster system. Some of us are lonely. Some of us have great connections. But here is the thing. In one sense, we all share one story. Because every single one of us, every last one of us, we were made orphans at the fall. We were enemies of God, cut off, dead in sin without hope. But God says, I'm going to give you new life. Christians call that being born again. I'm going to give you new life. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to not just bring you into my house. I am going to adopt you as my son or daughter. And I'm not just going to stop there. I'm going to bring you to my table. You're going to be part of my intimate family. And you are forgiven and adopted and placed at his table, made a child of God. And out of the grace that we've been given, we extend that to this broken, fallen world. And what do we do? You listen for the cries of the hurting. Christians go into the darkness of night and we listen for the cries of the afflicted. And when we hear them, we show up and tell people the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we extend that love, not out of guilt or shame, but out of what's already been given to us. So let's stand as we take communion.